0: Show
1: you a better way. Hi folks, this
0: is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Monday, November 25th, 2019, uh, and this is episode 2,554 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, but it's Monday of Thanksgiving week. Today we're going to talk about cooking fun foods for Thanksgiving. Just a fun show, though I do think you will learn some things in it. And we're going to talk a little bit about my productive weekend, too, in the beginning. Uh, So we'll talk a little bit about some things going on in the homestead. But this is going to be a show to get your mind going about different things you can do for Thanksgiving for your sides and stuff like that. A little bit of talk about turkey. But we've done shows in the past on Thanksgiving week where we've gone through laboriously 30-minute-long procedure of exactly how to cook a turkey to a perfect temperature. That was done by Heat Snow many, many years ago. I will put a link in the show notes. If you've never heard it or you need a refresher, you can go back and listen to it. We're going to have more of a fast-moving, fun show. In fact, all the stuff I'm going to talk about cooking, I'm going to give you the idea and the general principle behind it. And if you want to then make it, you can look up how. Because... Everything I'm going to talk about, there are recipes for online. And some of them, honestly, if you need a recipe for them, you're not trying hard enough. Um, I've said for a long time, when we talk about cooking on this show, that in general, I do not use recipes to cook. There's a few things I use recipes for. One is any kind of a baked good. Uh, Baked goods tend to be chemistry projects. If you want something to rise a certain way or have a certain amount of flake to it or something like that, um, there is a, a, a chemical process involved. And if there's not enough of one thing or too much of another thing, it doesn't work. So you get something that's supposed to be like a nice flaky biscuit and you end up with a brick or you end up with something that's supposed to be like a nice lifted you know, soft cake or bread and it's, instead it's kind of flattened, doesn't work. So I use recipes for that. And when I come up with a seasoning or a marinade, especially for the first time, I generally write down everything I put in it. Because what will happen is, you know, one out of ten of those ends up being like, oh, my God, is that good? And then you don't remember exactly what you did, and you can never get it that way again. So... With seasonings, marinades, and baked goods, I will generally either refer to or create a recipe. And then to some degree, I'll do that with sausages. Because sometimes when you make a sausage variety up, you just like, wow, did I nail that? And sometimes you make one up and you're like, that was really good, except there was too much of or not enough of. So those are things that I get really formulaic with. Like when it comes to, you know, how to make a sausage and cornbread stuffing, make cornbread stuffing and put sausage in it. This is not make it hard. This is just not making this hard. It is stale cornbread and chicken or turkey broth, maybe some celery and onions, salt and pepper, and yeah, add to it, and you bake it till the top gets crunchy and it's nice and warm through. Then you put it on your plate, you put gravy on it. Trust me, your great grandma did not have a recipe for making stuffing. It was what you did with leftover bread. All right, so that's what we're coming at with this today, and this week we're not doing any commercialism at all. Except I will remind you about T-Spaz and give you a T-Spaz item at the end. So we're going to have kind of a fun, short week. We got today. We got tomorrow. And Wednesday, we're going to have a Thanksgiving, a, a survivalist view of Thanksgiving, which is a, uh, the holiday show that we've been doing since the first year. Same one, every year, kind of like the old Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown Christmas and Charlie Brown Thanksgiving cartoons that you don't want ever to change. Right? So that's that's those. And then we are gone until Monday. So uh I do have a short week up on q for you. So let's let's get into this. I want to start out with a quote about not Thanksgiving but being thankful, since we're in Thanksgiving week. This is by Willie Nelson. And it came from a book about Willie called The Tow of Willie. And it's it's a book about learning how to be happy. And Willie Nelson in his life figured out how to be happy. And of that, one of the things he said is when I started, started counting my blessings. My whole life turned around. See, I think one of the best things you can do for yourself is to be thankful. And I think that's what Willie was telling us here. Because people who are thankful for what they have seek to preserve it and protect it. And people who are thankful for what they have tend to build more good things in their life. People that are not thankful for what they have tend to abuse themselves and destroy their health and their lives in the process. And not ever get more. Or even if they do happen to get more, they're never happy with it. You have to start where you are, be happy with what you have, and count your blessings. And I think that's one of the really great things about a holiday like Thanksgiving. And I I think that what I kind of wanted out of this quote for you guys today is to recenter what it is to be thankful. Whenever Thanksgiving comes around, we are always told what we should be thankful for. Frankly, Shut the F up. Don't tell me what I should be thankful for. You tell you what you are thankful for, not what you should be thankful for. Thanksgiving, in many ways, has become like public virtue signaling. I'm thankful for, and fill in the blanks with all of the stuff that people feel obligated to say. When I always feel like somebody's being genuine is when they say things like, I am thankful for my family. I think that can be virtue signaling, but when somebody means it, that, because that's personal. See, I don't have your family, and you don't have mine. So when people start saying, well, I'm thankful to live in the greatest country that's ever existed or whatever, to me, it just kind of shows me that the, the left doesn't have a monopoly on virtue signaling. Is the United States the greatest country that's ever existed? Maybe. I can make a case for it. Maybe not. I can make a case against it. I'm thankful to live in a country where I have as much freedom as I do. And I'm thankful to live in a country where I, I can call on us to be better without having somebody show up and grab me and drag me off to a gulag. And I think the number one way to actually truly show that you appreciate that is to be willing to call on us to be better. But I don't think that's what Thanksgiving's for. And and see, you get the virtue signaling on both sides. The the, the United States can do no wrong, and oh, it should be a day of mourning because of what we did to Native Americans. (sighs) Can't we have a day where everybody shuts the F up about what everybody else should be doing and actually understand the meaning of the day? The meaning of the day is for you to understand what you have to be thankful for in your life. If you are telling other people what they should or should not be thankful for in their lives on Thanksgiving, the point has gone directly over your head and made you look like the fool that you've become. It doesn't matter what you think about what anybody else should do on a day of Thanksgiving. The point of Thanksgiving and what should make it universally... Appealable to all people, regardless of race, religion, gender, etc., is it's inherently personal. It is not a day for us to give thanks for the things that the government says we should be thankful for. It is not for us a, a day for us to give thanks for the things that our neighbors say that we should be thankful for. It is not a day for us to give thanks for the things the TV or the radio says that we should be thankful for. It is not the day for us to give thanks for the things some bumbling idiotic celebrity says that we should be thankful for on Twitter or Facebook or whatever or Snapchat. I don't care. It is a day for you to personally be thankful for the things in your life that you appreciate and have inward thanks for. In other words, if you start counting your blessings, your whole life might just turn around for the better. And I think a whole lot of the people out there are so busy telling other people what they should be doing, they're miserable. They're miserable. Because instead of being thankful for what they have, they feel guilty for what they have, largely because they didn't do anything to earn it. You get out and start making a difference in the world, you get out and start doing things for other people, not only do you become remarkably humbled by it, you become remarkably grateful for the things in your life. And if you start counting those blessings, again, in the words of Willie Nelson, your whole life might just turn around. With that, let's get into it. Um, I wanted to start out first just giving you a little update, like I am kind of cruising into Thanksgiving week, I get it, and then I've got like it's three weeks, I think, till Christmas break. And for those that are new to the show and into my communities and all, I shut down right before Christmas and I see you on January 2nd. That's how it works. And My family comes first for that entire period of time. I also do a lot of stuff, though, on my farmstead. And this year, the agenda is huge. And I got something done this weekend in my greenhouse that I've been, I made myself go do it. It wasn't that bad. I had—I just didn't want to. I had two 50-gallon Rubbermaid tubs full of lava rock and expanded shale for ebb and flow beds on the top of two IBCs in my greenhouse. And as I've said before, all that stuff's coming out of the greenhouse this year. And that greenhouse is getting completely redone into a hydroponics-based uh, uh, and, and and soil-based environment. But there's just, you know, with two IBCs, two hundred, three hundred thirty gallon IBCs and a solid separator in there, 12 by 12 greenhouse is pretty small. And I want to reclaim the space and I want to do some other things too. Well, I got both of those unloaded and off the IBCs. So now all I got to do is drain the IBCs, rescue the fish in the one that are going in the pond, and uh, process the tilapia. There's a few tilapia left in the other one. They're big. I'm like, friggin' six, seven pound tilapia. Uh, those need to be processed. I might drain those on Wednesday. I might drain those on So I got that done. I also have now five Rubbermaid tubs of Kratky Aquaponics going uh, at various stages and using various media and stuff like that. And so that did happen. That got done. I'm using two different fertilizers. I'm using a liquid concentrate, um, and I'm using the Master Blend where I mixed it up myself. And I'm really becoming a fan already of the liquid concentrate. If side by side comparison, they it grows as good. Uh, it's a lot easier, a lot more convenient to uh, to do. All right, so let's go ahead and dig on into Thanksgiving. And I want you to, um, again, if you want to know like the procedure for making a perfect turkey, I'll link to the original episode with Keith Chef Keith Snow in it. He goes through the whole thing thermometer and all that stuff to make your turkey. And if you do that, you'll have a great turkey. A couple things I want to suggest. One is consider brining your turkey. How? Look up turkey brine, make a turkey brine, and stick your turkey in the turkey brine. And leave it in there for 24 hours, and then cook your turkey. Whether you smoke it, whether you fry it, whether you uh, do a classic roast, whether you part it out, whatever you do, consider brining it. Because you will have the juiciest, most tender turkey you have ever cooked if you do a brine. Now, make sure you look up a brine by some that's not retarded. Because um, if you do too salty of a brine for too long, you can end up with a really salty turkey. So don't do that. But if you look up basic turkey brine on Google, you will find the basic ratios for a brine. And I'll tell you this. You can cut the salt back by, by about 40%, and it'll still be a good brine. And if you're going to leave it for longer than 24 hours, do that. Uh, and if you want to really make yourself safe with a brine, like you're going to do this right away today, look up equilibrium brine for turkey. If you look that up, what you'll end up with is a a brine that will give you a concentration where once the turkey has taken in enough salt, it just won't take any more. It'll equalize, and you have a ratio where you figured it out, and you can do that. But a basic brine is all you really need, uh, 12 to 24 hours. The other thing I want to tell you about turkey, I was surprised how much resistance I got to this on social media. If you are not working Wednesday, if you are home Wednesday, I highly recommend you consider cooking your turkey on Wednesday. Turkey is the stress point at Thanksgiving. Your potatoes can get a little bit burnt or a little bit too thin. Your gravy can be a little thin or a little thick. You know, you can leave the beans in too long and get a little bit of burn on them, but everything else is good. And in the end, you don't, you don't stress out about it. If your turkey's dry or it's time to eat and it's not done, that's where all the stress comes from. And it's the thing that takes, you know, three, four hours to do. If you cook your turkey on Wednesday, you can warm it up on Thanksgiving Day and spend that day doing nothing but all the other stuff that goes for Thanksgiving dinner. Now, there were people that said they make their sides first and they heat up the sides. You can do that. Um, the issue is, generally when you cook something the day before you refrigerate it, and things like potatoes and stuff like that, they're really dense. And you can often have like screaming hot on the outside and ice cold in the middle. So if it's something you don't want to stir, or something like that, it can be a bit like you gotta really think about it. Turkey's easy to heat up. Um, I'm a big fan of like the Oster roasters. By the way, if you want a roaster, um, you're gonna have to go to the store. Like all the roasters on Amazon are jacked up in price and not available for immediate shipment because everybody's buying them all of a sudden. But I recommend the Oster 22 quart roaster. If you have one, I recommend you do your turkey in it. And you know you can just set it to a lower temperature on Thanksgiving Day and, and bring it up to you know a little over room temperature. It doesn't need to be real hot. In fact, it's better that way. And one of the things I really like about the turkey, the, the cooking the turkey on Wednesday, is that when you carve that turkey, it's warm instead of screaming hot, and all the juice doesn't run out of the white meat and turn it all dry. People think dry, you know, white meat is supposed to be dry and the dark meat's juicy. Uh, the, the dark meat's more forgiving of you doing it wrong. That's the reality. If you, because if you think about it, when you, you carve white meat, when it's cooled down, it stays moist. So just consider that, and consider using a roaster oven, um, and consider doing a brine. For wine, I'm going to do a little section here on some adult beverage stuff toward the end, but there's a wine I always recommend for Thanksgiving. It's very, very traditional, and it's more traditional in the Northeast, and not even the part of the Northeast I'm from. And I'm not really sure why, but it's northeast and northern midwest where this is very traditional. And there's not a huge amount of French influence there, but it's a French wine. And it's a wine called Beaujolais Villages. Um, also, you would if you called it by the, the grape, you'd call it Gamay Nouveau. Gamay is a very fruity grape. It would be the closest thing that the French have to, it's not anything like it, but the closest thing the French would have to something like a white Ziffindale American style. Like an Ernest and Julio Gallo Kool Aid wine, but it's it's way better than that. But you you get what I'm saying? It's not a serious wine. It's not serious about itself. It's not supposed to be. Gamay is a grape that grows best in very harsh soils. It looks like gra like the best soil to grow gamay Gamay grapes in. It looks like gravel. They like grow on these these hills, and it it's uh, Gamay nouveau would mean new Gamay or young Gamay grape. And it's a very fruity, kind of friendly wine. And even for a red, it's actually pretty good chilled. Not cold, chilled. This would be something you take the bottle and you pop it in the refrigerator about 30 to 40 minutes before you're going to open it. And this is a wine to have with your dinner. Especially if you like, you know, cranberry sauce. Because it kind of goes cranberry and stuffing, a little bit of gravy and the turkey, and it kind of just pops with all that. It's just something to consider. And here's the good news. It's about 7 8 bucks a bottle. I have a link in the show notes where you can find it so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but, again, in Beaujolais Villages, Lugido is the uh, the brand that I would recommend there. All right, so let's talk, talk about some of my not-quite conventional sides. I wouldn't say they're unconventional side dishes, but these are things you can add – to your Thanksgiving, I am going to give you some keto, low carb options and things like that. But, uh, these first five aren't. Um, I guess they kind of, kind of, kind of sort of could be if you wanted to make them that way, but it's up to you to figure out. The first one definitely isn't. Uh, twice roasted fingerling potatoes and bacon. And uh, really twice roasted isn't the right term for this. That's what I put in my notes. If you want to make a potato side dish, that will kind of blow people away, you want to try making this. And so what you want, you can use the little round, like golden or purple or whatever potatoes you do that, but this is really, I developed this for fingerling potatoes, all right? And the way you make these is you take your fingerling potatoes and cut them in half long ways so that you have a nice long potato exposed surface area. And boil them in some salted water until they're soft. Take them out of the salted water, drain them, and let them cool down. Then take them and take your hand and push down until they just start. Don't mash them until they just start to mash a little. Use a fork, the back of a fork or your hand, whatever. You want to where they just kind of start to crack and they're just starting to mush a little bit. Let them dry like that. While they sit there, because when you squish them, they're going to get a, they're going to have a little more moisture come out. You want that moisture to come out, so, so once you smash them, throw them on a the paper towel, set them aside. Get yourself about four pieces of thick bacon or eight pieces of thin bacon, and I don't know why you have thin bacon. And cook that bacon in a frying pan. You don't have to cook it all the way, but you want to render out a lot of the fat because we want that fat. And then take the bacon and, and drain it. Okay. Put the potatoes in a pan to roast them and put them with the, the potato exposed side down so that it makes contact with the surface of the roasting pan. Drizzle the bacon grease across the top of them. I said I'm going to do procedures. I'm going to give you this one because it's really simple and it's so good. And then hit the, the potatoes with cracked black pepper, rosemary, and thyme with drizzled with all that bacon grease and roast them until they brown until the potatoes brown and they get a little bit crunchy on the on the, the peels if you want to salt more than the salted water did wait till they're done in the oven take them out and use a coarse um, kosher salt and take some of the bacon grease that'll be in the bottom of the pan get like a a little brush or something and brush the back of them and hit them with the salt while they're still hot. The salt will stick to them and crystallize. It won't melt all the way in. And then take your bacon, chop it up and just throw it over top of your potatoes. It is one of the most amazing, simple things that you can add. And I may eat those over mashed potatoes because I didn't give you my holiday plan for keto and Thanksgiving. This is, I have a three part plan for keto and Thanksgiving It's very, very simple I think everybody should adopt it because we all have friends we can use for this plan. Step one, I'm going to eat whatever the hell I want. I'm not going to go stupid. I'm not going to eat till I can't move. I'm not going to put myself into a coma. I'm not going to hog down on four pounds of dressing or whatever, but I'm not going to make keto gravy. I'm not going to make keto stuffing. Um, I may do some of the keto sides I have for you because I want them, not because they're keto. Step two, I'm going to send all my high-carb leftovers home with friends and family that don't do keto. So any leftover stuffing, out the door with my son and daughter-in-law. Mashed potatoes, bye, take it home. And then step three, anything high-carb I can't send away will go in the duck compost pit. The end. Because one day will not derail anything about your life. A week of it? So you have leftover, like a big giant vat of potatoes, a big giant vat, and you end up doing Thanksgiving dinner four or five days in a row. That will plumb screw up everything you're working for if you're a keto low-carb person. So that's my plan. I'm just not even going to worry about it. So that's why you're going to hear some more keto, non-keto stuff. However, my next one is perfectly fine for keto, but I didn't put it off in the keto option because um, I just like it. And I don't think anybody that you serve it to is going to be like, oh, you're doing that because it's keto. No, really simple, bacon-wrapped asparagus or bacon-wrapped green beans. And this is one of those ones, I think if you need a recipe for this, you went to government school, and you went to government school like in the 2000s. Because even if you're like an older millennial, you shouldn't need a recipe to make bacon-wrapped asparagus. But I will give you a procedure for it to a degree, and that is don't wrap bacon around one piece of asparagus or one green bean. Make yourself a little bundle. Wrap your bacon around it, and then when you cook it, get yourself like this is one of my go-tos in the kitchen for so many things that I want to be crispy. You get a cooling rack and a half sheet pan, and they fit. One fits right inside the other. A half sheet pan is a half sheet pan. I, I don't. It's a it's a flat, shallow baking pan that you cook cookies on in the in the um, oven, and a cooling rack is a little grid-like thing, half inch grid with wire. Four little legs that sits on the countertop. And you're supposed to cook your cookies, and when your cookies come out, or bread, or whatever, and you take it off the pan or out of the pan, it's in. You set it on the cooling rack so air can circulate underneath it for it to cool. we well, you take the cooling rack and put it on the baking pan. Right now, when you cook something that has like bacon wrapped on it, the grease drips away into the pan, and it doesn't. Whatever you're cooking doesn't sit in the grease, and your bacon can get crispy. Throw it in the oven. About 425 degrees, cooked till the bacon is slotted crisp. That's it. Bacon or asparagus, I mean sorry, asparagus or green beans in that way are so freaking good. So delicious. Now not everything's going to be bacon. Um, another thing you can think about doing for Thanksgiving, and it's a really good, like an appetizer course, is a squash or a pumpkin apple soup. And this is one of those ones I'm not going to give a recipe, but, again, I'll give a basic procedure. You take some squash or some pumpkin, and you cut it and peel it. And you take the chunks of it, and you throw it in the oven. You don't even have to peel it. Honestly, the easiest thing to do is you just cut it into manageable size pieces, rub it with some olive oil, throw some salt and pepper on it, and bake it in the oven until it's soft. Because then it'll scrape right out of the rind. You throw that in a pot, you add some chicken stock or some chicken bone stock or some turkey stock or something like that to it to give it a good flavor. But before you do that, you take and you cook some onions down in the pan and then you throw that all in the pan. You have a squash and onion soup. If you'd like it to be a squash or pumpkin apple onion soup, cut some apples up and throw them in the oven when you bake the squash. And when they get soft, throw them in. And it would be a ratio of about, say, one butternut, one regular-sized butternut, to, like, two apples. Two big apples or four small apples. And the easiest way to do your apples, I see people saying, like, cut them in half and then, you know, scrape them out. No. Get an apple peeler, right? Peel with a knife. but an apple peeler, potato peeler type thing. Peel your apples. Get an apple um, cutter, the ones that make it, like, you push down and it makes, like, eight slices eight wedges, and the core comes out, just do that. And your apple will need to cook about 60% as long as your squash will, or it'll get really overcooked. You throw that all in a pot, you bring it up to a simmer, and then you either take an immersion blender, or you process it in batches in like a Vitamix. And you make it to like a puree. And if it's a little too thick, well, add some more stock. If it's a little too thin, well you shouldn't have made it too thin. So, air to the thick side, you can always add some broth to thin it out. That, and you don't need to make it. don't make a, well, let's put it this way, if you really like the stuff, make a huge bunch of it and store some. But for, like, a Thanksgiving thing, a single batch of one butternut squash, couple of cups of of, of uh, stock, you know, that even a big family, everybody can have, like, a small cup. And I wouldn't fill people up on this but a small cup of that, like rate right as people are getting there, people are like you're not ready to sit down yet, you take like a bit, you know, you can put it like in a crock pot or something to keep it warm and set it out and just set, you know, mugs and a ladle. And let people ladle that and kind of sip it like it's a beverage, even though it's more of a food. They're not going to fill up on it and it gives them something to do because the number one rule I have on Thanksgiving Day, if you come to my house, stay the hell out of my kitchen. If you're in my kitchen, and you're not doing something I asked you to do, get out. I don't want you in my kitchen. Go away. My kitchen is not for having conversations. We have a great big bar. The other side of that bar, you're still sort of in the kitchen, but you're not in the working part of the kitchen. You go on the other side of the bar. My whole family has that rule. All my friends have that rule. Stay the hell out of my kitchen. The number one way to keep people out of your kitchen, give them something to eat. Give them something to drink. Give them something to do. Get the hell out of my kitchen. And no, I am not exaggerating. My wife would be rolling her eyes if she's sitting here right now. But if you're not cooking, get out of my kitchen. And here's some soup for you to sip on. Next up, beer bread. I have an old video where I show how to make this. But it's basically flour, beer, and baking powder. And then anything else you can add. You know, cheese and herbs to make a savory. You can do like walnuts and cranberries. Very, very good. Very, very um, much a something for a Thanksgiving and whole cranberries, if you're going to do whole cranberries with a cranberry bread, here's what I do. Um, cut them in half. Cut them in half and throw them in there. How much? I don't know. Whatever looks right. But cranberry walnut beer bread. And if you do the cranberry walnut beer bread, do like half of a whole wheat and half of a white flour. It's totally not keto. It is totally awesome. I'm not going to do it this year because I'll go too far overboard um, but beer bread is a quick bread where we use the, um, uh, the bubbles in the beer to create the lift in the bread. And it's so simple. And those of you like, but if I don't drink alcohol. If you really don't drink alcohol, you can use like uh soda water. It won't be as good though. Um, uh, you can use like an old duels. It'll work. Sort of. I mean, you don't really taste the beer anyway. The beer gives it a character or a flavor. So O'Duls would probably work pretty well for that. I think oduls is something like 0.1% alcohol. If you're worried about that, don't breathe air. Um, but I do want to say that when you bake something like a beer bread, you do off-gas most of the alcohol. There is some residual amount. If you sat down and ate an entire loaf of it, you're not getting enough alcohol to have an effect on you. So if it's a religious thing or something, I understand. But other than that, Borrow a beer from a buddy if you don't drink beer. Uh, but try beer bread. And then the next one, and it's kind of my last unconventional side, is do a stuffing, a cornbread and andouille sausage. And some people say it's andouille and some say it's andalaya, and the answer is there's no wrong answer there. You can say it either way. I know some of you are like, andalaya is not a thing. There's a country song that says it's a thing. Just to prove prove me right. Uh, I, I I say andouille, and most people from Louisiana say andouille as well. I'm not from Louisiana. I'm just saying it's where andouille's from. Um, but andouille sausage and cornbread stuffing. You want the easy way to do this? Go get the freaking cornbread stuffing that comes in a bag. Follow the ingredients on the freaking thing, or the, the, the procedure on the freaking um, bag. And when it's done in the pot, cube up. Don't do it with big damn slices, people. On the andouille. Do not do it with big damn slices. Make cubes. Make cubes about the size. If you've ever seen stuffing that's done with bread and it's in perfect little cubes, you know a couple things. Number one, it was made in a bag because no one's going to take the time to cube bread that way. If they, I mean, you've got more important things to be doing. Usually just break or tear bread to make your homemade stuffing. Um, but about that size, Okay. Cube your, your sausage about that size and mix it with your torn cornbread stuffing mix. Take that and put it into a shallow pan and bake it in the oven, warm it up in the oven, what have you. But one way or another, uncover it toward the end, and even don't be afraid. To, you gotta, don't, you got I'm hesitant to say this. It's so easy to get distracted and on Thanksgiving Day, especially when people won't get the hell out of your kitchen and distract you. Okay, but turn the broiler on. But when you turn the broiler on, you stand there and you watch this wonderful concoction and you don't leave. And if somebody's in your kitchen, ignore them. If they talk to you, ignore them. Your eyes make eye contact with that stuffing and they don't come off. And as soon as it all starts to brown, you're going to notice that it browns in some places and not others, no matter how good your freaking oven is in the broil setting. So when that happens you take with, you make sure you have something covering your hands so you can burn it and turn that pan 180 degrees around and kind of shift it around and watch it and when it's all nice and brown and there's like one or two spots little spots, like dime sized spots that start to turn a little bit darker than you would like, the whole thing's done, take it out. As it heats up, the grease from that andouille and all that seasoning is going to seep into the cornbread. And then when you broil the top of it, you're going to get that little bit of crunch. And you're going to get that combination of flavor, taste, and texture. And it is phenomenal. That's a meal by itself. It shouldn't be every day. But that is really, really good stuff. And clearly not keto. Of all of those, the only one that's keto would be the bacon-wrapped asparagus or green beans. And the squash soup could be a little bit if we got rid of the onions and the apples. And then it would just be squash. It would still not quite be there so I wanted to give you some truly keto things but I wanted to do things that most people would eat and wouldn't even know that they're special and most of them wouldn't even be done to be keto and I realized I can't really do that and that some of you actually might want to be a better boy than me on Thanksgiving so number one how about we do a stuffing very similar to the one we just described when we do a keto okay so make a keto bread make keto bread And then break it up in little crumbled pieces and throw it in the oven on a very low temperature and dry it out. Make your own keto breadcrumbs. And there is a keto cornbread. And if you Google keto cornbread, you'll find it. And you'll know you found the right one when it's the one that says to take canned baby corns, which are mostly cob, and chop them up and put it in there for the corn flavor and texture. That's the one. Do that. And then use riced cauliflower and the sausage of your choice. And that's going to even bring down the fairly low carb bread even more. And the cauliflower is going to absorb the grease from the, um, the sausage. And that one's really, really easy. You're going to have to figure out how to, how much broth to add to your bread to basically imitate a store-bought stuffing. So if you just look up a recipe for homemade stuffing, You can get that ratio down, okay? And that's all you need to do. And then that's going to be bound up with the cauliflower, rice cauliflower, and the sausage. Can you do it without the rice cauliflower? You absolutely can. You'll stretch it further and get more stuffing-like going on. It won't look traditional, but no one will complain about eating it. The next one is stuffed mushrooms with anything you want. Now, if you stuff them with breadcrumbs, they're not keto. But I'll tell you something, and I, I don't know that this would be what most people would do for Thanksgiving, but something that Dorothy and I just tried, and we are so happy that we have pizza in our lives again. So what we did is we took some mushrooms, uh, like a medium sized portobello's, we pulled all the stems out of them. I put the stems in a plastic bag and used them to cook something else later, because they're a great chopped up mushroom. right? And then we put some um, good quality pizza sauce, or spaghetti sauce, into the mushroom. And then we put Whatever toppings we wanted. In this case, we did pepperoni, sausage, and peppers. And then we put some like Italian blend cheese on the top. And I just threw those, I actually cooked those in a frying pan. I was going to do them on the uh, Blackstone Griddle, but it was really cold out that day. And I was only making six caps to try them. Oh, they were so good. And I'll give you the secret. This is a secret for stuffed mushrooms that aren't all watery and mushy and don't suck. It's a secret. Don't tell anybody except the other 200,000 people hearing this right now. Take a toothpick and make a hole in the mushroom cap. One or two holes straight through the center of the mushroom cap. There's an ass load of water in mushrooms. As they cook, a lot of that water wants to render out. When you have it sitting upside down, it all stays in there like a little cup. When you put a hole with a a, um, toothpick through there, and I didn't say bore a giant hole. I said just take a toothpick and just poke it through one or two times. depending on If it's a big one, do it twice. If it's a small mushroom, do it once. It's kind of a self-sealing hole. So, like, if you have some bacon or sausage grease or something, it's not all going to get out of there. But as the, as, the, as the mushroom renders its own moisture, it'll drip out. And if you're baking it, put it on one of those cooling racks. See? And now you have a mushroom that retains all the little stuffed goodness in there. But it doesn't get all watery and juicy and gooey. And if you've ever had restaurant mushrooms, and you're like, man, these are really good, but they're so watery or so wet, and it'd be better if they weren't, they don't know the trick because it's a secret. Well, now you know the secret, and so does everybody else. Um, Next, if you want to do a keto gravy, um, you can just Google keto turkey gravy. But what you're really going to find is you basically make a gravy... And instead of making a roux, which if you listen to the old Keith Snow episode, we talk about making a butter roux to make turkey gravy with, uh, you're going to use xanthan gum uh, at about a half a teaspoon per three cups of liquid. And you'll need to read the procedure how to do it. Because if you just take xanthan gum like a half a teaspoon and just throw it into hot liquid, it's not going to work out really well. And it's not the same, but it's pretty good. It'll thicken it. Xanthan gum is a thickener. It's not bad for you. It's not going to hurt you. You use a very, very small amount. Um... I use it for thickening all the time when I do keto stuff. I use it mostly for like stews because it's really hard to get stew to actually have a stew gravy like consistency without using flour. And you end up using enough flour that it's no longer, you know, you do all this work to make sure you make a keto stew and now it's not keto anymore. So, xanthan gum is your, your, your kind of your secret weapon to make a keto gravy. Next up, this one I think, this is a good one all the time. It's a good one for Thanksgiving, and it's one that most people will eat. Loaded zucchini skins. You know, you make baked potato skins, you know, you got some cheese and bacon and onion, green onion, and like like that, chives, whatever, you know, cheddar, or maybe sweet, whatever you like on a baked potato skin. Just do that with zucchini skins. And you really, you leave the, the flesh as well. What you do is cut your zucchinis in half long ways, and then cut them So each zucchini usually makes about four. Take a spoon and pull out the seeds but leave the flesh. Then, this is my secret, you can look up loaded zucchini skins and you will find all kinds of recipes and ideas. But I like to firm up uh, summer squash. And all you need to do, you don't have to use a lot of... People say they don't want to do this because it's going to be too salty. Don't make it too salty. You don't need that much salt. Take your zucchinis, however many of them you had, and just do a little light salt on all of them. Kind of about the same amount. Take a piece of paper towel, two or three layers thick, and set that on a cutting board, and turn your zucchini so it's flesh side down on the paper towel. Leave it there for even ten minutes, and it will you, you will be blown away at how much moisture will come out. And you'll get a much firmer... Better texture to your loaded zucchini skins. And this means you can have a really cool appetizer or side dish for Thanksgiving. I think this is a great appetizer. Remember what I'm saying? T- get out of my kitchen. So here's your cup of, 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 of uh, pumpkin uh, soup. Get out of my kitchen. Well, we can put it in the, you don't need to put it in the sink. Here's get yourself for dishes during the buildup. Some big like Tupperware basins. Put all of those in here. Just put them in there, out of my kitchen, right? Now, here's the beauty of this. When people always want to help. They've wanted to be in your kitchen the whole time you're cooking. So, you know, Cousin Marcus, who constantly doesn't listen, that basin of dishes, that just became his thing to do for cleanup. So when somebody asks, how can I help? We can clean up. Well, what do I clean up? That, you Do that, Cousin Marcus, that basin of dishes, that's yours. You clean that in the sink. Right, and that way you don't have the sink like towering with dishes at the end of Thanksgiving. Everyone's like, "Holy crap, where do I start?" And the first thing you got to do is pile everything to another spot so you can clean up. Get some t- Rubbermaid tubs or you know any kind of a, a plastic dish basin type situation. And as you get done with courses, everybody put their dishes in there and then just put them out of the way, like out on the back porch. And that way, when it's time to clean up, you have phases of cleanup and other and people can help. Or even if you do all yourself, you don't have to start out with where the hell do I put everything so I can clean up, all right? So you do that, and then next up, here's your loaded zucchini skins. Everybody gets a zucchini skin, and I would serve those on like little paper plates. Just throw those away. Now, if you're smart, they were they were done in that pan with the cooling rack, okay? So as soon as they're done, it frees it up to cook something else in the same situation. And just line that pan with foil. And when you're done with that pan, just roll the foil up and throw it away. And the pan doesn't need to be cleaning; just go right back underneath the little drawer underneath the uh, oven. All right? So trying to help you all the way out through here. But these loaded zucchini skins, not only a great side dish or appetizer for um, Thanksgiving. If you're keto, fantastic thing to know that you can make. Because a little sour cream and all, and all. You're not cheating. You're not cheating at all. In fact, really easy to make those have the proper fat ratio for keto. Um, next, how about keto chocolate mug cake? Just Google it. But what I'm telling you, you can do is with a few ingredients, you can take a coffee mug and you can make a chocolate cake in a mug. It'll taste like molten lava cake. It'll taste just like the best chocolate cake you've ever eaten. Maybe not the best. It'll just taste like a really good molten lava chocolate cake. And why do a mug cake? Because when you decide that you wanted to stay keto or at least you know not completely overdo it and everybody else is gorging on apple pie and, and ice cream you can make up one little mug for yourself you can make and it takes like five minutes while everybody's the hell out of your kitchen you want to reward yourself for cooking and you can if somebody wants one it's really easy to make two three four they're so easy and you might even spread a little bit of the keto addiction without anybody feeling like they're suffering now what I'll tell you is, a lot of the recipes call for Splenda. Don't do it. Uh, use use the Lakanto sweetener that I recommend if you have it, access to it, which is erythritol and monk fruit blend. Uh, use that, and it's a it's a straight measure for sugar, so you can figure out exactly how much you want to use. It tastes so much better, and Splenda is not what you think. And a lot of the um, a lot of the Artificial sweeteners that claim to be stevia and all, they end up having, if they're less uh, solid, they have like Malditol and stuff in them, which it's not good for you. Plus, it's not really um, what it says it is. Some of the artificial sweeteners, um, even though they say that your body doesn't process them as sugar, they do. And Malditol is one of them. Malditol is why anything with the Atkins label on it, don't buy it. Malditol is why all of the sugar-free candy in the diabetic session at the grocery store, don't buy it, don't rely on it, don't do it. Uh, Malditol is almost as high in insulin response as pure sugar. So make your own and use that. And another recipe for ketos, and you can do this anytime, not just Thanksgiving, is make a chia seed pudding. And there's endless options. You can make a vanilla. You can make a chocolate. You can make it with berries. You can, I mean, it is so good, and it's not even cooking. Chia, when you mix it up with the stuff that you use to make the pudding... And you sweeten it. Again, I recommend the monk fruit blend by Lakanto. Um, but you can use an erythritol, you can use a stevia, whatever you want. Uh, it just, it gels and it, it tastes like tapioca pudding. But it tastes like tapioca pudding and texture flavored like whatever you made it tastes like. And so that would be, and that's like a, cheese is like a superfood. So there's a couple recipes. Desserts that are non-keto. One of my favorite ones and really, really good. And I, I it's still better for you than apple pie because it doesn't have a crust. But baked apples. And all you do is take an apple core, you can do it with a knife, but a core makes it really easy. Core your apple, leave the peel on it. And then stuff it full of brown sugar and butter. That's it. And then bake it till the apple gets soft. About three hundred and fifty degrees until the apples until you when you when you reach in and carefully you don't burn yourself, you kind of pinch the apples, they're kind of like soft and mushy on the inside. Take those and then just eat the apple out of the peel. It's it's so good and it's you can make it you know, when you finally let people in your kitchen, you can have somebody an apple core, And the best thing to do is cut the top off the apple. Cut the top off the apple so it's nice and flat, just like you're making like a top. Like, let's imagine you were cutting the top off of a pumpkin to do a jack-o'-lantern, but instead of cutting in and around, you just cut straight across. So enough to make a cap. Then core that apple, and if you're really good, try to leave the bottom of the apple. So try to take the core out, but leave it so there's not a hole in the bottom. Fill it and put the cap back on it. It just looks cool. And again, just stuff it with about equal amounts of brown sugar and, and butter. Just take some softened butter. And if you have three tablespoons of butter, put three tablespoons of brown sugar. Kind of mix it like you're making a compound butter and shove it in the apple. i just saying. It's really good. And it's, again, better than an apple pie as far as you don't have the crust. And if, if you do like ice cream, that with some ice cream. Ugh. And then, you know, kind of a compromise in between. Don't be afraid to make dessert a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit adult, and not even make it a big deal. Really good dark chocolates and a good red wine, like a good Cabernet. That's one of the best desserts. After everybody stuffed their face and you kind of let your body settle down and you're watching football and you're sitting around and adults are talking adult talk and kids are off doing kid things, and instead of another big old hunk of pie or something like that, Pull out two or three, you know, get two or three really good quality, different dark chocolates, and a couple bottles of wine, and pour everybody in a little three-four ounce glass, so they're not schnockered off their butt with everything else, especially with what I'm about to give you. And red wine and chocolate and good conversation. That's and an, just an amazing dessert. Um, some adult indulgences. Um, number one, I'm going to recommend that maybe you think about, because you don't have plenty of time to do this, a homemade liqueur of your choice. And that's like a blackberry or a blueberry or a strawberry or an apricot or a peach, any kind of liqueur. Well, we're just basically doing an infusion of a vodka or fuel you spill in your mouth, moonshine, with a fruit or a nut or whatever you want to get a flavor from. And then you're just doing a mix with basically simple syrup. And I did a whole show on liqueurs, so I will link to that in the show notes if you want to know the procedure for it. But that's, I mean, it's, it's so stupid simple. And you can take weeks to do this, but I mean like a blackberry liqueur, you can do that like, boom. I mean like a day. Blackberries give up their, their flavor really, really fast. And use frozen fruit for this because it's, it's had all the cells rupture. That's why I like when you take raspberries that have been frozen and you defrost them, they like ooze raspberry goo. It's because the cell walls have ruptured. It's why it's a really good thing if you're going to make a wine or a mead with fruit to freeze your fruit or use frozen fruit. So if you want to do like a raspberry liqueur, you just go get yourself a bag or two of frozen raspberries in the freezer section and do a raspberry liqueur. What if you want to be a little more sophisticated? Do like a raspberry brandy or cognac. Just use a decent cognac or a brandy and do the same thing. And then you can sweeten to taste. You don't have to sweeten to schnapps-level sweetness. And that's the beauty of making something like this. You make your, your 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 alcohol base and you start adding your syrup to it. And you taste it. And you say if you use a little more, and you taste it, and you go, that's about right, and you stop. Because you're not making a product for resale, so you don't have to know you know this is thirty seven point one three 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 percent alcohol and comply with the department of making you sad. You just make it taste good. And then go easy on it. But that's a nice thing to be able to tell somebody you made. It, it takes 15, 20 minutes of actual work. So that would be something to consider. And then I want to give you a beer. I like to share adult beverages <clears throat> that you can tell a story about. And the beer that I'm going to recommend you consider for this year, it's expensive. It's about like 12 bucks a four-pack. But it's called Midas Touch. And it is based on an ancient recipe, and it's kind of a wine, a mead, and a beer all in one. The original recipe didn't call for muscadine grape. It called for grapes. But since they made it and they wanted to make it a little bit of their own, Dogfish Head Brewing um, used white muscadine and uh, saffron because it's amazing golden color and honey and a very strong ale yeast and it is to me one of the most interesting beers that you can drink and the whole story when you buy a little four pack the whole story of where it came from and how they made it and what it is is on that four pack and this is why I've tried to explain to people how much I love things like Johnny Walker Blue from a Scotch and everybody thinks I'm a Scotch drinker and I'm really not that much of a Scotch drinker but I like Johnny Blue I like to be able to tell people a story that goes along with what they're drinking, and that is what makes it, instead of just a bunch of people getting drunk, throwing booze back, a bonding experience. And that would be a good one to do that with. There's other things you could do that with. I don't have them on my notes, but like Chimay. If you learn about shimay and how the the monks have been cultivating the same yeast for hundreds of years and how they ferment them and all, that would be an example of something that you could – share a story with. Um, lambics. Lambic ales that are made in a 10-mile radius of Brussels. And they're fermented in concrete vats on in the open air on the rooftops of the brewery. And you can only make a real lambic in that place. And you get like a Framboise, which is a, a, a raspberry lambic, or a Creek, which is a cherry lambic, or a Guy's, which is a peach lambic. Any of those. And you have that in place of the wine. And you tell people where it came from and what there is about it. And you you don't do this when everybody's all rambunctious. You do this when people are settled. You do this when the kids are off doing kid things and they're sleeping or whatever. And Uncle Joe, who's always running his mouth, is so into the football game, he's not going to interrupt. And you do that, and it it really does add a bonding experience. And then the last one is my apple pie moonshine. And I'm going to cheat here because I explained exactly how to do this last year. And this is the one I actually wanted to give you the full procedure on. I think Apple Pie Moonshine is something you can pass around, and if you just go easy on it, it'll be well. So I'm actually going to splice in right here, uh, just so I'm not cheating. I'm going to tell you the segment on how to do this from last year, and I'll come back and finish this up. I'm going to do something today that I think is fitting to do at Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is about being grateful for what you have and giving back. And I'm going to give away my Apple Pie Moonshine recipe using Everclear uh, so you don't have to use actual shine. And uh, you might actually use a little bit more shine if you're using shine. Very few people are turning out shine at like 190 proof and above unless you have one of those really awesome stills from uh, Mile High Distilling with the thumper column and all that. Then you can turn it out for a shot at 190 proof. Um, but I make an apple pie moonshine that is, I think, the best there is and There's some secrets in it, and some of these secrets are secrets that are old secrets that quite a few people knew about, but they're not really unknown anymore. Like if you just a little bit of Googling, you'll see them used here and there. Um, The other stuff is there's a couple things here that are really mine that I have never seen anybody use, call for in a recipe, ever. And I'm giving them away. And that's a little hard for kind of an alchemist-type cook to do um, because one of them makes it taste like there's butter in it. And a few of you out there that have probably been to the one workshop where I bartered the recipe, have the recipe. have You don't have this recipe, but you do have the secret to making it taste like butter, isn't it? And I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it because if I don't go ahead and say it right up front, I'm going to not say it. You substitute... So, Most recipes call for an equal amount of white and brown sugar. You substitute honey for the white sugar. And I don't know why, but you know how like when you're eating an apple pie, it has kind of this buttery crust thing going on, and it tastes like there's butter in the apple that tastes like that when you drink the apple pie moonshine. Okay, so this is pretty stout. It's not hugely stout because it's a recipe for two gallons, but it's, this is something for sipping, right? This is something like maybe as a nostalgic thing, you put a fancy label on it, you put it in a mason jar, and you pass it around, everybody takes a sip or two. This is not something somebody drinks a glass of. The problem is you can drink a glass of it really, really easy. But here's the, here's, and I have, this recipe is on the show notes today. You can go get it. Um, One fifth, 750-milliliter bottle of Everclear. Or high proof shine if you can get it. Two cups of vanilla vodka. Yeah, that's a that's a well known secret that is no longer you know really hidden very much. It's pretty well known, uh, but that's an old secret. Uh, instead of using vanilla beans because it's less expensive and it it has a lot more bang for the buck to it. <laughs> Here's another. Secret that's also no longer well cup kept. Two cups of Captain Morgan spiced rum. That's an old apple pie moonshine makers secret. because um, it's relatively inexpensive and it it stretches the batch and it, it's very, very nice. And it avoids put a whole bunch of like apple pie spice mix, muddly crap in there. Um Again, you can and you do whatever you want. They make that in like a 70 proof and a 100 proof. It's up to you which one you use. I usually use 100 for this, but I also very much throttle people when they're drinking it. Uh, and then you need two gallons of apple cider. Let me say something about this. You will see recipes say one gallon of apple cider and one gallon of apple juice or half gallon and a half gallon or whatever. Um, mostly in America today, Apple cider and apple juice are differentiations in marketing, really. But ciders tend to be a little bit cloudy and more of just a fresh-squeezed, unprocessed product, where juice tends to be like a filtered, clear product. If you can get apple cider, it's what I recommend. And if you can get good, fresh, real apple cider, it's what I recommend. But this will work with any apple juice or cider. Um, and then you need eight. This is this is a secret. Real cinnamon sticks to the two gallon batch. What do I mean by real cinnamon sticks? I mean Ceylon cinnamon. C e y e l o n. I think is how you spell. I'm not good at spelling unless I'm actually writing it down in my head. I see things weird. Uh, but celion cinnamon. I'll have a link to the brand that I use on Amazon. This is not optional if you want to get this subtle character. What I taste in most people's apple pie moonshine is this really harsh cinnamon instead of this background cinnamon. And it's because they use basically fake cinnamon, which 99% of the cinnamon people use is fake cinnamon. I won't get into the whole differential between the two of them today or anything, but real cinnamon. And then two cups of brown sugar, And I personally feel the darker the better, so I like to use dark, and then two cups of honey. Again, this is a two-gallon batch. You can cut it straight in half if you want to. You can use half a bottle of your Everclear and a cup of vodka, a cup of Captain Morgan, one gallon of cider, you know what have you. Um, And then here's the procedure for this. So you take the apple cider and you put it in a big pot because it's a lot, and you, you heat it up you throw in your cinnamon sticks, your sugar, and your honey, and you stir it until they dissolve. That's really all you need. And you turn it off and you let that sit. Once it comes down in temperature, you go ahead and you add all your alcohol, your vodka, your Everclear, your Captain Morgan. You give it a good stir. And then you go ahead and put that into, I usually do it in quart jars because it looks cool and that's what everybody expects. What I like to do then, the cinnamon sticks that I use are pretty big. I'll cut them in half. And if you've never used true cinnamon, it'll surprise you how easy it is to cut true cinnamon compared to that fake crap that they call cinnamon. It's a lighter color. It's less harsh in flavor. It's a softer flavor. I'll usually cut them in half, and I'll put one cinnamon stick in each jar. It looks cool, and it continues to add flavor. Um You will get more cinnamon over time with this if you let it sit. But if you wanted to make a batch of this up tomorrow and serve it for Thanksgiving, no one's going to bitch about it. I promise you, no one is going to bitch about it. So that's my apple pie moonshine. And again, the true cinnamon um, and then the honey, those are spiracles that that until today, I, I don't think you can find a recipe that specifies either one of those online. I'm gonna tell you, I kind of like uh, snarkily used the term "secret" a bunch of times in that um, in that uh, segment. There, it's a little snark and it's a little not. Those are things that you can find if you look hard enough, except the honey. Honey, I'm the only one I know that makes it with honey. But putting them all together the way that I did, it took me quite a few years to nail this recipe. And a little trick with how to know your how far you've boiled it down and all that stuff, that's from things that have nothing to do with the Apple Pie Moonshine. I'm telling you, you make this, you can't buy it. You can't buy anything like this. And uh, just be careful with it because you can drink a hell of a lot of it a hell, hell, hell of fast if you're not careful. My final thing that I want to talk about, and I, I say this every year, and I say it not just on Th- the Thanksgiving episode. I say it multiple times Leading up to and on Thanksgiving week, because I think it's so important. This is one day, have fun, don't fight, and don't take what I call argument bait. No matter whether you win an argument or lose an argument, the only thing you will think after a Thanksgiving where you fight with your family is, I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't say that. Even if you're 100% right, even if they were being an obnoxious asshole, even if you had heard what they had to say a 100 times before, when you call them on it and it turns into a fight and an argument and people are upset and your mom's crying or whatever, all you'll think is, God, I wish I didn't do that. And sometimes the feuds that come from this, they ruin family relationships. And it's very clear to me. I think people are confused as to why this happens. It's not confusing to me at all why these fights happen. These fights happen because every family thinks they're special, and every family thinks they're the only family that has the problems that they have, and the disagreements that they have, and the underlying issues that they have. You're not. We all have it. And then those issues ferment into resentment. Then you get everybody together, and sometimes you get the two people that have a fermented resentment, and only one side even knows about it because the other side's freaking clueless about their role in it. And then you lubricate it with alcohol, plus you have family together, plus everybody's stressed, plus everybody talks and everybody says things, and the person over here is saying something to get under your skin, but often because they don't even have a clue that they get under your skin. And then, boom. Explosion and it blows. If you go into it knowing that, and you go into it with what we started out with, the quote of the day today, which is that your entire life will turn around if you count your blessings, and you realize how wonderful your life really is, and that changing your Aunt Sue or your Uncle Bob or your mom's or your brother's or your cousin's or your kid's view on politics or religion will not make your life any better. Or that thing that one of them did to somebody else 20 years ago that nobody forgave each other for, if you need to fix that problem, March would be a great time to do that. Around March 2nd. Why? Because it's not Thanksgiving or Christmas, dumbass. That's why. Don't try to fix old problems. Don't try to rehash old arguments. Don't try to do anything on Thanksgiving other than appreciate what you have. And no matter how obnoxious you feel someone's being, realize there's three things that could be at play. Number one, you're right. So it's bait. And if you take it, you lose. They might lose too, but you lose. You don't want to lose, so don't take it. Number two, it is highly probable that the consumption of ethanol has increased the mouth to the point where the mouth is no longer fully connected to the brain. So now it might be bait or it might just be stupidity, but the person is not really thinking about what's coming out of their mouth, you be the bigger man or the bigger woman and don't engage. Or three, and this is so often the case, that person doesn't even know that they did something in the past to upset you. I know that might make you more angry. But do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? On Thanksgiving, focus on happy. Because a lot of times people are saying things and you're taking them a certain way and they don't mean them a certain way. But since you only see each other once or twice a year and now everybody's there and everybody's kind of lathered up with stress of travel and I want this and you want that. And see, the other thing that makes all of this harder is that we have so many split families in America today where, you know, your kids are at your house and because of a certain situation... They need to go do a second Thanksgiving. So your kids are there with your grandkids, and you have always had Thanksgiving at your house, and now your daughter got married, and she wants to go off to her son's family for their Thanksgiving. Because she wants to do both, and she can't be in two places at once. So they're literally doing two Thanksgivings today, and you're giving them shit because they're leaving. Or you went second that day, and they're going to be with you late into the evening but you're giving them shit because they were 30 minutes later than you had planned because they got stuck because the last parents were giving them shit. And there's so much of that. You end up with divorces, and you have kids, I say kids, the younger people in the family trying to appease three, four, five freaking different adults that should know not to do this. So you can have that going with it. The The kids may have come down to your state this year and pissed off the mother-in-law that they left behind, and you don't even know that, and that's part of what's stressing them, and they could be getting hateful text messages while you're arguing with them about some bullshit that's not necessary. If you listen to this show, you know all about personal responsibility. And here's the thing, all that other shit, you don't control, but you control whether you make it worse or not. My, In my family, we have exactly this dynamic going on. My daughter-in-law's mother is a self-centered, whiny, woman who uses terms like you're abandoning me because they come here at all not just at Thanksgiving you know what we're doing? Thanksgiving in my house is on Friday I'm not adding to anybody's shit I'm not adding to anybody's shit I'm not going to be part of adding to anybody's shit however you do it, my solution may not be right but my suggestion is do not add to anybody else's shit If you're hosting, be a good host. If you're a guest, be a good guest. If somebody's an asshole, don't engage with them. If they try to make you engage, if you have to, take a walk. Just pull the kids around, take the kid out to play baseball, throw a football with them, play dolls with the little girl, whatever. Do not engage in anybody's bullshit, and do not add to anybody's stress. If we all tried to do that, we would all be happier. And then... When you do that, don't feel like they are obligated now to notice that you did that. The way you know you have not contributed to somebody's stress is they don't notice anything at all. So if you're thinking, man, I went through all this crap for them and they don't even know it, good. Welcome to being a grown-ass adult. Welcome to not adding to somebody's problems during the holidays. And welcome to getting what you want in the end by helping others get what they want. I know that's a bit preachy. But I've seen so many people, so upset, so miserable, and so angry. And I never know anybody that ever got in that situation who said, you know what? I won and I feel good about it. Never. I've had people that tell me, you know, I'm so right or whatever, but they never feel good about it. It's one day a year. Bite your tongue if you have to. And enjoy yourself and enjoy your family. And if somebody else makes it difficult, ignore that person. And go do something else. In the end, you will be a happier person for it, and you'll be able to count your blessings instead of your regrets. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you do, you'll find all the items that I recommend and I have reviewed. And remember, if it's there, I own it. I spent my money on it, and I would do it again. We're getting towards Christmas, and I want to start giving you some little simple gift ideas. And this is part of my EDC, that's Everyday Carry for the Uninitiated, and uh, I've been carrying one for a very long time, and it's my favorite little micro multi-tool. It's called the Gerber Dime, and it is just a great little tool. It looks like a, like a miniature Leatherman, basically. And Leatherman makes a, a, a micro mini-tool, so you might wonder why I don't use theirs, because the Gerber's better, definitely for the money. You know, has a, a straight tip and a Phillips tip screwdriver, a little pair of scissors, a file, a bottle opener, little pair of pliers. And it's just a great little tool. And it's got a nice little knife blade and it's got what they call a retail package opener. I probably use that thing more than I use anything else. And I thought that's nah, a gimmick till I got it. How many times you get like something in a clamshell and it's not something you can just pull apart and you want to cut into it, but you're going to damage the very thing you just paid money for inside of it by cutting into it. This thing, if you've ever seen a skinning knife for a deer where they kind of have the gut hook, it's kind of like a gut (laughs) hook for clamshell packaging. It's pretty damn cool. Um, They're about 20 bucks. They make a great Christmas gift for anybody that would like a tool like this. And so it's not just outdoorsmen and preppers or whatever. Most most guys would like a tool like this, and a lot of women would too. Not most, but a lot. Um, It comes in a bunch of different colors. And I'll tell you, it's a tough little tool. I carried one for three years before I had to replace it. I did break one. And I broke the pliers. Everything else still worked on it. I was trying to get um, the CATV fitting off the back of a router. So Comcast sent me a new router, and the old one that the the tech installed it for me when, when we had our cable put in when we bought the house. And you must use a damn pipe wrench on it, because I mean I could not get it. to Usually you turn them off by hand, and I had I had my keys in my pocket and this thing lives on my keychain, and I and it wouldn't turn. And I was like, well, how tough is this thing? So I went down on it like trying to crush somebody's hand, and I did break the spring and the pliers. So I did find the limits of it, but it was really excessive force to see if it would hold or not. And I can't see, like, the thing was, even that wasn't enough for it to do what I was asking it to do. It's a small tool. It doesn't do all things. Right, I ended up using a, a, a normal sized pair of pliers, and then the damn fitting turned out of the router. That's how tight this thing was. I had to take the damn another pair of pliers and then remove the fitting from the cable. So that's that's what it took to ruin this. It's not designed for that, but for day to day use, you'll you'll this is one of those things that like you won't realize how valuable it is until you have one. And then you're like, "Wow, how do I ever not have this?" I do carry actually for my full-size multi-tool. I use the Leatherman Wave. I think it's the best full-size multi-tool there is, but I don't want to I don't always have it on me. Otherwise, you can start walking around looking like Batman with a utility belt. Like this is true EDC. It's on my keys. There's a picture of my keychain, my actual keychain I carry in the review, and you can see that the multi-tool is about the same size as the key to my Toyota 4Runner. So, uh, check this one out and remember do your online shopping at T You help us out no matter what you buy. And the holiday seasons are coming. You're going to be buying stuff online anyway. Why not go through T Spaz when you do? And uh, I will start bringing you more and more of these little, like, stocking stuffer type things. Again, the Gerber Dime, I think, is just one of the best things uh, you can look at getting for people. All right, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is by Bruce Hornsby in The Range. And. I think Bruce Hornsby and the Range is probably one of the more underrated groups of, of modern time. Um, I think a lot of people hear a lot of their music and think, man, did Don Henley do an album I don't know about? Because it has a very, he has a very Don Henley-like sound. And the piano, the keyboard and stuff, um, a lot of Bruce's music is very similar to Don Henley's. And he's actually done quite a bit of writing with and for Don. And this song kind of in some way stands in contrast with my advice about counting your blessings today. It's called Look Out Any Window. And it is about the predatory nature of our society where people are killing themselves just to make a living. And the wealthiest among us tend to exist as parasites. There's truth to that. I'll be the last person to deny that. But... When you talk about those people, you're about the 1% of the 1%, the, the, the 100th of 1%. Most people that are wealthy got there by making other people's lives better. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the person who's wealthy got there because they did a really good thing in life and, and made other people's lives better or because they're a parasitic prick. It doesn't matter. Your life is not going to drastically change because some rich dude isn't rich anymore. And if we took all the money from all the rich people and gave it to all the poor people, those poor people, the majority of them would be poor again within a couple of years. The way that you get to actually being content is to be grateful for what you have, like I said. And you can see those injustices. And then there's two choices you have. Two paths you can walk. One, you can bitch about how bad it is. And say somebody should do something. Or you can go out and do the very best for yourself and your family with a generous heart and not worry about other people. With that, it's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.